0: evening at Romans 5, verses 3 to 5, where we have these words, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out his love Into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom He has given us, rejoicing in our sufferings. Some of you might recognize uh, these words I'd like to know that your love is a love I can be sure of. So tell me now, and I won't ask again will you still love me tomorrow? It's poignant song covered by a lot of artists, because it reflects the the insecurity of personal relationships in a world where love is based on satisfying pleasure than giving commitment. And the love that God has shown us in the Gospel, which is explained by Paul uh, in these chapters as a justifying love, a love which makes the sinner righteous, is a love that we might think is too wonderful to be true. And we might ask the question, will that love endure tomorrow? Will I be justified come the end of the journey? Am I secure in the justifying love of God? What we have in the opening uh, part of chapter 5 is a- an argument to the effect that we are secure in the justifying love love of God. Paul will pile up argument after argument to demonstrate the security in which we now stand as justified sinners. Let's set the verses in context again. Uh, The verses in uh, chapter 5, at the beginning of chapter 5, are so wonderful. They are real preacher's verses. They stand out uh, on their own. And sometimes, Uh, When we have such strong verses, uh, we we need to remind ourselves again of the context in which they're set. Uh, Paul has been working from the outset in Romans to demonstrate our great need, which is to have a righteous standing before God. Chapters 1 and 2, he demonstrates that we lack this standing. Uh, He goes... Exhaustively through the different categories of people who might argue that they will be all right come the day of judgment to stand before a holy God. And Paul demonstrates that none of us have a leg to stand on before God. Uh, Whether it is the freewheeling pagan who doesn't care, who's living for the day, or the the pagan moralist who claims that you don't need to have religion to be uh, an upright person, or the Jewish person who's confident uh, in his uh, Jewish pedigree, his religious uh, adherence. None of these people, even on their own terms, can be shown to be righteous. And Then, uh, in chapter 3, he tells us the good news of what God has done. God has shown us a righteousness which does not have its origin in ourselves, but comes from outside us and is given to us by faith. In chapter 4 he goes on to expound on the righteousness which is credited to us, using Abraham as his great example. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Not only is Paul working through the, the doctrine of justification by which we have our sins forgiven and have righteousness imputed, these two sides of justification. He's also, uh, he's also defending himself against the accusation that what he's preaching is something new. He's saying, no, this is something which has been the means of grace for saints for 2,000 years, since the time of Abraham. This has been how people have been made right with God, not by their works, but by faith. And now in chapter 5, we are seeing the security that we have through justification. And there's quite a list. Last time we were looking at the peace with God that we have, the access to God that we're given, the grace in which we stand, and the hope of glory that we rejoice in. And now uh, in these verses, we look at the joy that we have even in our sorrowing, in our sufferings, and the love that God pours into our hearts by his Spirit. So, we're going to think, uh, first of all, about this remarkable fact that Paul says all Christians rejoice in their sufferings. And then secondly, that we rejoice because our sufferings under God are purposeful, they are productive. And then thirdly, God has shed his love abroad in our hearts by his Spirit. Not only so, Paul says, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Not only so, Paul's continuing, he's hammering away one argument after the other. These things that he's already said would be, fantastic, alone, to have peace with God, to have hope of glory ahead. But he says, there's more. There's more. We rejoice in our sufferings. Uh, When we meet with afflictions, that is the very time, says Paul, we rejoice. And this isn't an exhortation. Uh, We we noticed uh, at the beginning of chapter 5, it's not, let us have peace with God, but we have peace with God. It's a matter of fact. This is descriptive of the Christian. And it's the same here. It's not exhorting us to rejoice in our sufferings. It's saying this is what Christians do. Christians uh, have joy in the midst of their sufferings. Some words of explanation, first of all, uh, as we go into this. Uh, The word suffering is a strong uh, term. Uh, Some of the translations translate it tribulation. And the Greek word is which meant uh, the pressing down of something. It was a word that was used of the threshing sledge. So uh, when you're in the barn with a heap of corn, this sledge would crush down, would press down <coughs> upon the heads of grain and would break off the individual grain from the stock and by the pressure would separate <coughs> the chaff from the grain. It was a violent forceful action, Uh, and it communicates, because of the way that it's its uh, origin, it communicates the idea of being pressed down, being under pressure from something. So, there's a situation which opposes us, it presses down on us, and yet we can rejoice in it. What kind of things are we talking about? One of the commentators, John Stott, uh, who's always a good value. Uh, Stott thinks that the the pressure that is spoken about here is the pressure of persecution, the the pressure uh, against the Christian from the non-Christian world. Uh, Other commentators aren't convinced that it's to be restricted quite so narrowly as that. And I think it includes... All the sufferings that we experience as Christians, and maybe especially that suffering which comes because we are Christians, uh, when you think about it, that is precisely the kind of suffering that would cause us most to question our security as justified people. Here I am, I'm believing in Jesus, and all of, all of a sudden I've got all this horrendous opposition from people simply because I'm a Christian, that would be the, the, the suffering which would make us uh, most doubt our security, and therefore it's possibly, just possibly, most in view when Paul is speaking about sufferings here. So direct opposition, uh, being laughed at because you're a Christian, uh, people who are unsympathetic in your family circle, who make it difficult to get out to church on the Sunday, Uh, Maybe being passed over for a promotion because you don't go to that party where everybody gets uh, rolling drunk. Uh, A young person, uh, good at sport, and they're not able to play at a top level because they refuse to train or play on Sundays. Christian couple living with childlessness because they refuse to use fertility treatments which don't respect the sanctity of life all kinds of different pressures, financial pressure, health pressure, the pressure of work. Paul speaks of his own pressures in the ministry when he was in uh, Asia. We do not want you to be uh, not, we do not want you not to be informed brothers about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure. there's that, that picture again, far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even of life. Well, some obvious points from what Paul is saying are clearly from what Paul is saying, Christians should not expect to escape sufferings in this world, despite what the the charlatans of the, the health and prosperity gospel say that uh, health and prosperity are the birthright, as it were, of Christians. The Bible, the New Testament, especially makes it clear that uh, it's not health and prosperity that is God's blessing and gift. It can be suffering itself, which is a gift of God to us. Uh, Paul says categorically anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Secondly, we don't uh, respond to suffering by the ways that the non-Christian world often responds to suffering. One of the ways that it responds to suffering is by denying suffering. I know what we call the stiff upper lip. Uh, you know, you've got to grin and bear it, and and get through it. The the kind of stoic view of life. That's not what Paul is teaching here. Then there are those who. Wallow in their suffering. They they seem to be only happy in a strange sense when uh, things are going badly and they've got something to complain about. They would feel, it seems, wretched if their misery was taken away from them. Uh, That's not what Paul's speaking about either. He's saying that positively we rejoice in our suffering. Not that the suffering in itself is a good thing, but that we know God has good purposes and he is in control of the situation in which we find ourselves. Our suffering is part of something bigger, uh, of blessing and of good. Now, when we hear Paul say Christians rejoice in their sufferings, uh, some Christians want to push back at this. And... uh, They want to say that this is unrealistic, or it's unusual. Paul, this is unrealistic for uh, anyone to expect me to rejoice in my sufferings. It's all I can do to kind of hang on in there. I'm so overwhelmed by my circumstances, uh, that it's enough for me to put one foot in front of the other, never mind rejoice in my sufferings. And it's true that we might not be able to rejoice right at the moment of trial, and we have help in this from Hebrews 12:11, where uh, the writer to the Hebrews says, "Plainly, "No discipline for the present is pleasant, but afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So right at the moment when you're hurting really badly, it may not be possible uh, to be singing and rejoicing. But that should soon follow. It should soon follow that you are rejoicing in your suffering. Because that's what Paul plainly says here. We rejoice in suffering. Again, there's a complaint, well, that's just unusual. It's an unusual uh, kind of Christian who's able to to rejoice in their suffering. It's, it's for a super saint, but not for me. I'm just uh, a rank-and-file Christian. But Paul's words are clear that it is every Christian. The description applies to those who are justified by faith, and therefore it's every Christian uh, of whom Paul is speaking. And down through church history, that has been the case. it has been all kinds of Christians, under pressure of different kinds, have been able to show a fortitude and a joy in their circumstance that has caused the world to sit up and take notice. And these have been uh, people who have been poor, disadvantaged, people of of little education, uh, people who were on the margins of society. In modern um, Britain today, we are several generations away, aren't we, from from what is really genuine national suffering, uh, from the the wartime experiences. But go to places like Burma, or go to South Sudan today, and speak to Christians in these situations, and they will uh, be people who will be able to speak of real suffering and real joy existing alongside each other. So, there is this fact, Paul says, that Christians rejoice in suffering. And the reason that we can rejoice in suffering is because we know that suffering is productive. We know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, the key word in this line here is the word no. We know this. Uh, in other words, it's not automatic. Uh, just to just cause your suffering doesn't mean that you're going to be able to rejoice. You have to apply your mind. You have to apply your mind to scripture, and what scripture says about your experience. This is where we fall down sometimes. We don't we, we don't put our minds into gear and address the situation in which we find ourselves or, or find ourselves. Paul says, first of all, that suffering produces perseverance. This is the first thing that suffering should produce in the Christian. And the word perseverance is a compound word, uh, two words put together which mean to live under. So, taken along with the idea of tribulation or, or being pressed down, it means to have the ability to live under pressure without wriggling out of the situation. Leon Morris, one of the commentators, says, the word denotes an active, manly fortitude. It is used of the soldier who, in the thick of a hard battle, gives as much as he gets. He is not dismayed by the blows he receives, but fights to the end. That's what perseverance is. And you know, it's probably one of those qualities that we need badly in the modern church uh, in the West. One of the problems that we lack perseverance is the culture that we live in. Uh, We live in a welfare state for which we have a lot to give thanks. Uh, The welfare state is, despite our complaints, very successful. Uh, The National Health Service, uh, regulations surrounding uh, workers in the workplace, uh, housing associations and so on. All of these things mean that in comparison to our grandparents' generation we don't really have to struggle for long periods under adverse conditions. But as a result of that we have an expectation That, for example, in the service of the church, we shouldn't need to stick around when things get difficult. You know, we can uh, uh, apply for a transfer, we can opt out of whatever. And perseverance, a commitment to carrying on under difficult circumstances, is exactly one of the things that God will bless in the service of the church. A great quote from Uh, William Carey, uh, who was known as the the father of the modern missionary movement, and he did great exploits in in India. And he said towards the end of his career, when he was being uh, held in high regard back in Britain, he said this, uh, if he, that is his biographer, gives me credit for being a plodder, imagine that, Carey being a plodder, he will describe me justly. Anything beyond that will be too much. I can plod. I can persevere in any definite pursuit. To this I owe everything. I don't know about you, but I find that very, very encouraging because Carrie uh, achieved huge things for the kingdom of God. If we had even... Twelve of us who had that persevering characteristic. What would God work in Coatbridge, in our own community? So when we meet with suffering, it can teach us this missing attribute. It can build up reserves of perseverance in our lives, which will enable us to keep on keeping on. It will enable us to be, in the best sense of the word, plodders. Perseverance, says Paul, produces character. Now the word uh, character uh, is one that has the idea of having been proven or passed the test. One commenter says it's the temper of the veteran as opposed to that of the raw recruit. People who lack Christian character, if you don't have Christian character, what you'll be will be a liability in difficult situations. Uh, there are those who go to pieces when uh, things are contrary, when things are against us. Uh, think of uh, Pike in Dad's Army. Think of the way that uh, Pike characteristically responds uh, hysterically when things go badly. There are people like that in the Christian world who go to pieces under pressure. There are those who whose negativity makes people feel that they're enveloped by a great black cloud that has descended around them. And again, with the, the, the dad's army in mind, we, our mind goes to Corporal Fraser, doesn't it? And uh, we're all doomed. People uh, who lack character and who bring instead negativity into the situation. And suffering produces perseverance, produces character. Great thing. The quality of being, of having been tested, of having come through adversity and being someone who can be counted upon in difficult situations. Now, the great thing is, it's is not something which uh, pertains only to older people. It's wonderful to see character being shown by young people. When I was preparing this, I was thinking of uh, one young lad that impressed me in this way uh, in Sky. He was in his sixth year going on to... Uh, be a student, he recently uh, lost his mother had conducted the funeral for his mother and he and the family had come through that that really difficult experience with tremendous dignity and, and fortitude and this young uh, chap joined us on a, a trek that we did uh, to we, we used to do a, a walk along the the ridge that goes up uh, the north end of Skye, sky the Trotternish ridge and it's a two day walk and we were doing it to raise money for Karen refugees and on this occasion we decided that we would camp on the top of the ridge and although it was midsummer, it was sky and so the weather was terrible and there was a howling gale and the visibility was really poor and I remember being impressed with the character of this young chap as we were trying to haul the canvas of the tent down in this wind tunnel in the teeth of this gale Uh, He was unflappable in difficult circumstances. He, at an early age, was showing the signs of having been tested and approved character. And character, Paul says, produces hope. And we've come full circle because he was speaking about hope in verse 2. We rejoice in the hope of glory. We started with hope. We considered the very thing that might undermine our hope, that is suffering. When we experience suffering, we might think, well, what's it all about? And so why that can cause us to rejoice, and this is because in God's hands our suffering is productive of perseverance and character. And all of this gives to us evidence that God's in control. God's hand is on our lives. And therefore it strengthens that hope With which we began. It's a virtuous circle strengthening that which we began with. Mention of hope leads Paul in another direction, and he goes on now to speak of God uh, pouring his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given to us. Maybe Paul's thinking of the accusation that, you know, having mentioned hope. That some people make it's all pie in the sky when you die. It's all theoretical. But I want something that's more tangible, something that's in the now. And Paul speaks of the fact that hope does not disappoint us, does not make us ashamed because God has poured out his love into our hearts. He's speaking of something experiential, something that we, we can know and feel. You know that the, uh, the Top Gear programme uh, is infamous for uh, road testing cars in, in ridiculous ways uh, sometimes, and especially in its earlier incarnation, uh, cars would be put through horrendous conditions. I remember the the truck that they seemed the pickup truck that they seemed to hold in highest regard was the Toyota Hilux, and they would. Uh, Torched this truck, it would be uh, driven under water. It would be dropped from a, a great height. It became known as the car that even Jeremy Clarkson could not destroy. It was a car that was well proven. But the wonderful thing is that when God tests us, when God proves our character, it's God who is in control of the testing. We're not in the hands of, of a man child like Jeremy Clarkson. We're in, in the hands of a God who is wise and who is good and who is compassionate and who, in the cauldron of testing, in the fire of suffering, pours his love into our hearts. You know, uh, Peter's letters, especially, um, have been covering Peter's letters in the Explore notes over the last quarter. And Peter's writing to Christians who know firsthand what suffering is all about. And it's remarkable that in this letter to suffering Christians, there is so much spoken about joy. And one of the the, uh, most precious parts, uh, 1 Peter 1, 6-8, In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have to suffer various trials so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, which though perishable is tested by fire, may redound to praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here's a lovely one. Without having seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with unutterable and exalted joy. That's what Paul's talking about. That's what Paul means when he's saying here that God has shed his love abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. And that, he says, is the, that's the heritage of every Christian. Again, this is a uniform description. And all of us who are Christ's will at some point in our lives know something of this joy unspeakable and full of glory. At some point and to some extent, and very often at the time when we are in the midst of suffering, because the two seem to be bound up. God comes to us and sheds his love abroad in our hearts when we're going through the mill. Remember uh, Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and their brave stand before King Nebuchadnezzar. He raises uh, the golden image and everyone is commanded to bow down before the golden image and they will not not bow down before it. In this great plain, with everyone prostrate before the image, they are standing bolt upright. They're hauled before the king, and they have got this fantastic uh, note of, of faith and confidence before Nebuchadnezzar. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O King. Here's the great bit. But even if he does not, know this, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you set up. That's faith, isn't it? We believe God can deliver us, but God is sovereign and may not. But nevertheless, we know what's right and will not bow down before any idol. And so the king uh, has them thrown into this blazing furnace. And as he watches, he sees walking around, unharmed in the furnace, not three, but four. And the fourth, he says, looks like the Son of the God's. I believe that in their out of need, the Son of God, pre-incarnate Son of God, had come. To these three men and was pouring out his love into their hearts was accompanying them in the blazing furnace how can this be, how can it be that God does this, that he can come when we are suffering most and assure us of his love it can be because Jesus went into the cauldron himself was consumed on the cross of Calvary and had no one to be with him in his hour of need, cried out the cry of desolation, endured that sorrowing solitude that we might never endure our suffering alone, so that in the fiery trials that we face, we may rejoice, rejoicing because we know that those very things are in God's hands and therefore can be productive of character ultimately, and knowing also that those are the occasions when God is most like to come and to commune with us and reveal us, reveal to us himself and bring to us a joy unspeakable and full of glory. What a glorious God. What a Salvation. Father, we thank you for the gospel. Thank you for justification by faith in Christ alone. Thank you, Lord, that when uh, we seem to be up against it, when life's trials press down upon us, we thank you that you are working in our lives, are producing perseverance and and then character. Thank you, Lord, for the love that you shed abroad in our hearts, for that felt sense of your presence, which is such a wonderful aspect of our experience as believers. Bless your word to us, we pray. Lord, may it remain with us throughout this coming week that whatever it is we may come up against, whatever heartache or sorrow, whatever reversal or disappointment we come in contact with, we may know that you are with us and will never leave us. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.